you're tuning in to Change It Up, the podcast. A podcast about young people challenging the status quo. I'm Sarah and I'm super excited to be in this journey with you. We Gen Z's have so much to offer this world. We're creative, inclusive, empathic and tenacious. And we're not afraid to stand up for each other. Join me and a fellow Gen Z for a weekly conversation about the behind the scenes of being a young change maker and all the things that matter to us. We're here to build connections and inspire positive change. So do you want to change the world with me? Take along. There's a power of community that does not require wealth or privilege or, or institutional credibility or any of these things on just getting things done at a local level. And that both of these things are true and that we can actually learn a lot from things on the street corner, things on the ground, as opposed to just looking at the G7 community. And that maybe if heads of state actually spent a little bit of more time, I think, communicating at that level, they would actually understand how things actually get done um, and, 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 and the human nature component of it. everyone and welcome back to change it up the podcast my name is sarah and i am as always happy to be here with you guys and for everyone that's tuning in and listening and is part of a community and doesn't matter where you are from the world i feel this is just such a beautiful and interesting and inspiring and exceptional community and we are so happy that we get to be a part of this and i'm personally really really happy to be a part of this and i feel like this episode today's episode is just a really special one in that regards because we get to talk about something that is really just at the core of the world right now at the core of our organization at the core of this community which is trying to find solutions to the world's most critical issues but also think about systemic change and how can we create and overcome how can we create solutions and, and overcome the systemic issues that we have in our society on a global scale and how do how do we break from and and dissolve the idea of having silo systems of not working cross cross sectionally and intersectionally and and all of these things that has just been a way of of wanting the world for so many years whether it's within a specific field or we're talking about the world like borders are closing down on each other and and nations focusing on solving the issues on national scale rather than working together to solve them on a global scale and this conversation and Henry who is our guest today is someone that just has inspired me for the past two years since I heard about him for the first time and I was so amazed by the way that he has been able to uh, break down these stereotypes of, of way of thinking about organizations and way of thinking about how we can solve issues and how he's been able to just the amount of people he's been able to mobilize to to contribute to all of these amazing projects that they are doing um and and their community and and i will i just learned so much from from watching how they've been able to to do the stuff in their organization and and how uh henry specifically has has shown up as a leader and how he he as a young 
um, person himself has been able to to work with people in all different generations and age groups and across borders to really create some really interesting, some really inspiring and some highly efficient um, projects that hopefully will will become amazing solutions to one of these all of some of these most critical issues that we have and challenges that we have in in today and but what i think of, about this is what inspires me the most is is that we talk about because he's been able to in this conversation there's so many things to unpack and and we talk about sort of the difference of how we can create change on on a societal scale and how we can align our social structures with with the technological structures the techno technological change that is happening in the world and these things are highly complex but we can sort of simplify them and and boil it down to something which is really simple which is about how can we how can we f create a new system and continue to create new institutions and systems that that align with the technological change that we are seeing in the world and and tackles that at front um instead of just being a reaction to to those things and and we also talk about like how henry was able to like how he started the organization how he was able to reach out to people who are Nobel prize literates or fortune 100 ceos or lead scientists um activists anyone who's it's just a part of their community who is just like the top of their game extremely extraordinary people and how what questions he asked them how he was able to invite them in to become a part of their part of their community and and all the the incredible things that they've been doing for the past couple of years and and that just taught me so much about how truly any one of us can can do this how it's totally achievable for all of us and how much people actually want to help and also the interesting question is that money is not always the issues Helena is really an example of seeing that and how we can start seeing that just bringing people into the same room whether online or in person um, actually makes a huge difference whether it's talking about the American One Room project which literally helps uh, studies people who sees the change that happens when we bring people from all different backgrounds in America and different political backgrounds and have a conversation how that shapes and starts to change their viewpoints but also to lead scientists or global leaders in, in business world and, and bringing those people together they actually find the solutions and find the thing that they need to make a change so I this is just a really treat of a conversation and we're so happy and and especially we get to talk about also all the the some of Henry's favorite books and and his reading journey and and that's always a good conversation to chat about books um so I just want to give you a quick introduction to to Henry so Henry is the CEO and founder of Helena and Helena is is a problem-solving organization that seeks to implement solutions to some of society's most critical issues and challenges and problems in the world and they do this through this exceptional through the amazing projects but also the exceptional members which they call Helena members who count as I said before for people who 14,500 people, 1,400 CEOs, Nobel Prize and illiterates, activists, architects, 
artist, um, Academy, Academy Award winning artists and, and actors and people who are just leading voices in their field and we, we get to unpack all of these things and also his journey of how he chose to drop out of Yale to start this organization and really be at the forefront of making an impact in the world. So without further ado, let's bring it Welcome back to another episode. We're excited to be here. We're excited for you and welcome if you're a new listener. Um, I'm really excited to welcome you, Henry, to the show um, and to talk with you. So I just wanted to to start on a really positive note, something that we are a lot about in our organization. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what is something that right now at the moment is making you smile or feeling really hopeful about the future? Well, uh, thank you, Sarah, uh, for, for having me on the on the podcast interesting as far as something that is making me very hopeful for the future this is per perhaps too boring of an answer but i think that there is a legitimate groundswell of adoption of and an investment in companies that are actually addressing climate change um, across all of the different uh modalities that climate change needs to be addressed, like decarbonizing massive heavy industries like cement, ammonia production, all the way to pure carbon capture. I think that there's a lot of fluff in the world of addressing climate change, but I think within that there's actually some really good work now being done. And I think that has been a change since, you know, you, you look at the early 21st century and the first decade 2000 to 2010, where a lot of kind of hopeful companies were not able to actually commercialize real solutions. We're now seeing such an adoption of these, of these technologies and also other approaches on the social side for climate change. And I think there is real traction and real momentum. The question will be if it converges in time. And I have, I have some doubts about that, but I have seen some recent work and the stuff that we're doing obviously has a lot um, of, of involvement there that has seen that adoption. And I think the social, uh, uh, um, uh, pressure uh, is working. We're looking at top-down changes that are occurring to some of the world's largest companies. And we're seeing genuine effort um, uh, from a lot of core players that uh, I would say a couple of decades ago and even five years ago, we're not thinking as, as, as deeply about it. So I, I would answer that uh, that way. Mm, that's also something like I think to be really hopeful about. And that speaks a lot to the work that you do. So I just wanted to start by uh, you telling us a little bit about what is it that you do and the Helena do and what is the type of organization that you're working Sure. So I'm the founder and CEO of Helena. Uh, we do one thing, which is find and implement solutions to societal problems. We are agnostic to the field uh, that the solution is in. We've done work across climate, health, and many other areas. We also have a really unique structure in which we are agnostic uh, as long as it works and is the moral and correct solution to do. Uh, to implement solutions via the for-profit, non-profit, and the legislative uh, worlds. On the for-profit side, uh, we have an investment firm. We will find companies we feel are addressing societal problems at a fundamental level, pair a capital investment and operational support to those companies. But on the nonprofit side, uh, we run and execute our own projects through our foundation. 
And sometimes we feel the best way to implement a solution is actually not through for-profit means. Um, and sometimes the incentive structures are much better to do it on the nonprofit side. Um, and supporting us in doing all of this work from helping get the ideas in the first place for Helena projects to doing diligence on them, to actually operating them um, beyond our amazing full-time team is a group of people called Helena members that we've brought together. And there's over a hundred of them. They, uh, they're around the world. And these are some of the kind of top leaders in the world across many different fields. And instead of them signing up for a discussion group or a conference, although we do, um, you know, have those elements in Helena, what they sign up for is actually to work on the, on, on the projects to actually help uh, roll their sleeves up, provide the capital, provide the operational expertise, provide the technical expertise to implement, to implement these solutions. And the reason we are doing this is that we feel that there needs to be new types of institutions in the 21st century to address uh, the world's problems. And that the institutions that we rely on from governments to think tanks, NGOs, and others, um, irrespective of, of how noble they are in, in, in their work, oftentimes were founded uh, during just a different era of human history, um, in which the types of exponential technologies and the types of movements we are seeing are actually just not part of, of global society. And um, we have seen these kind of legacy institutions react poorly to the problems that we are now facing, um, not just COVID, but COVID is an amazing example of this, um, but across other issues like climate change, nuclear, um, and, and much more. So we feel very strongly that there needs to be a new type of design for institutions that solve societal problems outside of government. Um, and we hope to be one of those um, in, in the 21st century. Mm, yeah, and I think you have come like just thinking about the last years, you've come such a long way. So I just wanted to know, like from the beginning, like going back to to like the twenty year old Henry uh, sitting in his dorm room in college, because I know you founded it when you were in college and ended up dropping out of college as well. Um, was that your original vision, or was what what was your original vision, and how did it came about? What is the story behind it? So I think it it, it came about in this kind of from the same process that basically every person who's a sophomore in college has, which is what do I do with my life and what do I really want to accomplish by the time I'm dead? And I think I had some of those so kind of a, a one-fifth life crisis uh, back then. And it got back to the same topic, which is um, when I looked at kind of the next 50 years of society and human history, we are staring down a convergence of a couple of uh, factors. The first is an increasingly global globalized society just uh, advances problems quicker and uh, at higher scale than ever before. When you think about something like the Black Death, um, which was way more dangerous uh, uh, than, than COVID, for example, um, you did not have the globalized and very complexified transportation systems and you know, modern society we have today. And um, as deadly as it was, it was not confined and did not spread uh, in the same way that COVID did. So you have that. Then you have uh, an increasing production of exponential technologies. And I think the Manhattan Project was one of the first examples of something that uh, truly threatened um, global civilization um, if, if that technology was not utilized correctly. And we are now seeing that across many other uh, technology uh, domains from uh, biosecurity, genetic engineering, um, I think farther in the future, artificial intelligence, but many others. And when I looked at um, that convergence, I said, I really want to be a part of, uh, of that. And I want to be a part of steering those uh, developments in the correct way and also addressing societal problems. And in studying the 
organizations that I could go work for at that juncture, I felt as though there were holes in them. Um, and it wasn't really the fault of those organizations. It goes back to the point of them being more legacy institutions. And I think that inspired me to think, okay, um, with my kind of hubris thinking of being a young, young guy who doesn't know what he's doing, um, and overconfident, shall we say, uh, <laughs> you know, what could a new type of organization that I would want to work for look like? And if I'm already thinking about that, why not start it myself? And why not think about, um, uh, 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 you know, contributing to society in that way, as opposed to working, um, in, in one of those legacy institutions and addressing it from the inside. I think that was the core spark. And from there, it was just total sweat and iteration, thinking about, the structure of what such an institution would look like. And that kind of derived and, and led me towards starting something that was agnostic to uh, field and also agnostic to entity type of for-profit, nonprofit, and legislative. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I think I was thinking about at the very beginning because I found it odd that people associate, I'm going to go save the world with this has to be through a nonprofit entity, or I'm going to go make money. I'm going to go interact with capitalism that has to be done through a for-profit entity um, and that there is some sort of domain that kind of doesn't interact with solving societal problems that is business. And I felt that was very odd because those are really just tax definitions. And um, I felt as though uh, a new type of institution that um, thought more from first principles and actually did not close itself off from areas of impact at its inception um, was perhaps a better approach than starting something where, you know, we are only going to be a nonprofit focused on climate policy. Well, what if there's something outside of climate policy that's more important? Um, you know, those are the types of questions that I was thinking about. And it was about preserving optionality so that you could have a platform approach rather than a very siloed one. Mm, Yeah. And I think it's such an important point that you make about actually taking the choice about whether to, or including becoming a for-profit company uh, or doing both for-profit and non-profit work because that's something that, that we did in our organization as well, like really focused on that we knew that the solutions were not necessarily made in the non-for-profit world, that we needed to do a lot of work that was sort of business-oriented, working with different companies because economy is such an important part of actually the solution and not the problem, right? I'll make a point on that, which is I think one of the things that we're very passionate about, I know you are, and, and I know uh, won't be a new topic to your listeners, is carbon capture. Hmm. If you think about the evolution of carbon capture, um, it, it's kind of silly because it, it, it has to include everything from policy, nonprofit and for-profit adoption. Yeah, right. At the very, very beginning of, of carbon capture, you have the academia uh, kind of component of research and development of actually just figuring out the physics and chemistry of it. Mm-hmm. That requires nonprofit capital and that requires non- nonprofit structures. Then you have the early commercialization of it which, uh, you know, it's too expensive. It needs to get the cost curve down, all of that stuff. Then you have another bucket, which I would call concessionary capital. You know, people that are putting down investment capital, but this is not investing in a business-to-business SaaS company that has, uh, you know, high margins right away. Mm. Then you have greater adoption, and then you go into the venture capital world. of Okay, this is more risky, but maybe we can get a return. That's another group of people. And then you have something that I hope to see in the future, which is it becomes a bankable asset that interacts with, uh, um, you know, kind of the sovereign wealth funds and the institutional capital. These are very different communities that have to work together, whether they know it or not, on the same project. So again, if you're running an organization that can only do one of those buckets, you're actually, and you're doing that on purpose, I believe you're locking yourself out from actually supporting a solution 
uh, throughout the entirety of its life cycle. And I fear that a reliance on just the, just thinking inside of those boxes has actually held back quite a lot of innovation, quite a lot of, I would say, efficiency in the world addressing its problems, because there's kind of a passing off of the torch of, oh, well, this isn't cost competitive, therefore we're not going to do it. Uh, you know, go talk to those guys. Mm. And I think there needs to be a bridge between each of those uh, worlds. And that's, I think, part of what we're trying to do at Helena. Yeah, and I also think it's, it's a lot of question about actually of power right now. We see that the shift of power moving towards more about the business side of things that we have. The economy is it's, it's much more a powerful tool to actually make and change, right? And I think that's a lot of things that we need to think into the equation as well, that that where do we actually make the biggest amount of change? And and speaking about change, because a lot of the things that you guys do is is really just fueled by your members. Um, and your member is... Your members is just like complete excellence from, from Academy Award winners to Nobel Prize laureates to 1400 CEOs and, and activists. And I was thinking something that I think a lot of our listeners want to know and then I would love to know is that coming from from being so young yourself and, and practically having no experience when you started uh, when you started Helena, how did you or how were you able to convince them to work with you? I think the answer is I was not able to convince them very well. Um, <laughs> So the first thing that I, the first thing, no, it's a serious answer. The first thing that, um, so when I was starting Helena, um, just taking a step back, Mm. you're this, uh, you're thinking about, I'm going to start a new organization. And the purpose of this organization is to find due diligence on, and then implement solutions to societal problems. That is not an easy thing to do. And it requires a lot of stuff. It requires the ideas, the flow of new potential projects. It requires the technical ability to do diligence and ascertain whether you should, in fact, do a project. And then, of course, it requires everything that goes on to execute a project, which we now know very well, which is you have to raise capital. You have to have leadership for that project. You have to have operational expertise. You have to do everything. So the question at the very beginning of Helena was, how the hell are we going to get that stuff? And the answer that we came up with was just, there are people that represent, and there are good people in the world that represent each of those pillars of capital, not just physical capital or monetary capital, but intellectual capital and resources and relationship capital and all those things. And the thinking was create a membership that isn't like um, a conference membership and actually isn't a service where we're not going to pay the folks that are members and the members aren't going to pay us as a, as, as a transaction. Instead, we're going to try to find people that actually believe, and this sounds crazy at the time, but believe in the mission and for the purposes of actually executing these projects. And I'm surely there's going to be things that motivate uh, these leaders to do inside of the projects that, that, you know, could help them make money. Or I'm sure there's things there, of course, at the time, but that the principally that they would sign up. And that was actually the impetus for the membership. So, um, uh, I'll now get to the answer to the question. I started by writing out a spreadsheet um, of basically every person in the world that I could find that I respected that could be a candidate for membership. And it was thousands of names. Um, it was a horrendous spreadsheet because I, I did it by field and I didn't feel like I had any sort of complete or holistic understanding of which fields to represent. I also got the X and Y axis off, which I learned later, but I emailed basically thousands of people. And from that outreach, barely anybody responded. And of the people that responded, I actually only got one member to join. Um, from that point on, Helena actually had no projects for you know up to eight to 10 months. And during those eight to 10 months, all I did and all we did was asking each of the members that we had, and even if it was just one or two or three members at a time, exactly what they wanted to do in the world themselves to solve societal problems over the next two to three years. And then getting that answer and then asking them a second question, which is what stuff 
do you currently not have, but you will need to have to do the work that you say you're going to do in the next two to three years? And when you ask this question to anybody, but let alone a world leader or Nobel Prize winners, the kind of caliber of the folks that we're now privileged enough to have, you get very fascinating answers. Oftentimes you don't get, I need capital. And if they had only said that, it would not have been very much help. Oftentimes you get folks that are actually very, very interested in connections to other people that are working on stuff that they respect or they think is the next step up. So on the economic side, we saw a lot of interest at the time, because remember this is back in 2016, on the proliferation of blockchain technologies and cryptocurrency. And we happened to have a strong network there. We were able to make those connections to the early members such that the result was a very, very strong networking group or kind of, uh, kind of group of amazing people that were legitimately working together because we were pairing them together, where we started to see significant outcomes just because we were hosting Helena meetings with one or two of the members at a time. By doing that so consistently, and also just putting our time and our sweat and our energy into it, we built these extremely strong relationships. But on top of that, we started to get referred to other people that were the peers of the existing members. And it was that kind of referral process that happened organically. And by the way, this entire time, we're still in the dorm room, we're still bootstrapping it. We're not, money is not a concept that we are trying to throw on the members because we're trying to milk the time that we're uh, you know, in college for-, for Yeah, of course before we leverage it into projects. And I think that that contributed to the authenticity of when it came time to, okay, we have this amazing idea. We're going to do this project, this project, this project that the members saw that. And they really wanted to organically get involved again, because this wasn't us pushing it on them. We, you know, we have a very clear relationship with the members when we started, which is saying, look, we don't owe anything to you, but you also don't owe anything to us. Our job is to do our best efforts to try to find and bring to you amazing ideas that we could potentially work on. And that's also your job. And we want to be a collective for that. I think that process um, was what uh, uh, I think started kind of the, the, the primordial soup, if you will, of Helena. And the other reminder I'll say is we operated and still operate, uh, but for the first five years, we were a nonprofit. And now we have a nonprofit entity and a for-profit entity that, that coexist and have the right separation between two of them. But we did not add the for-profit arm of Helena until very recently. And I think that had a lot to do with, I think, building a DNA of the organization where we weren't making any money doing these projects, you know, American one room and the shield project and the carbon capture, all of this stuff was because we legitimately thought we could make a difference. And we were not thinking about for-profit means at the time. I think all of those things together, I think helped the early chapters of Helena grow with authenticity, but also grow very slowly. When I look back at the last five years, I, um, you know, it seems fast, I think from the outside, but we, you know, it was like molasses to, to grow mm -hmm. this kind of brick by brick. Yeah, so it's been a long process. Uh, I like that you, t how you like describe your process in in like the different steps that you went through. Because I think from the outside, as you said, it, it seems like a really like fast pro process, and like out of nowhere, you guys were there and you guys were doing like this really amazing stuff. But you see behind the scenes a lot of the things that's going on, and I know from from personally from our process as well that there's a lot of things like a lot of sort of preliminary work that you do in order to to make things work, to start up, to to find the right people to work with, and that's like having that fundament is such important things because when you want to go out in the world and do the stuff you can't really rely on on having the expertise unless it's people that you really believe in yourself so um yeah. i think it's such important to to really highlight that process so I want to go to a little bit different uh, direction, but I wanted to discuss a little bit because you know so much about uh, what is 
the challenges that we face right now and and the biggest challenges that is is happening in our generation and i want to i wanted to talk a little bit into like the things that is going on right now in the world and it's really like apparent for our generation especially but also but how is that different from previous generations what is that what is different from right or what is different right now from previous and and how can we what are the biggest challenges that we face Well, the first thing I'll say is I I don't consider myself somebody that has uh, the answer to this question. I don't think anybody does. So mine is just as much of a postulation as anybody else. The way that I think about this, though, is that there are two different types of technologies. The first I would classify as what most people think about as technology. So, uh, you know, the proliferation of artificial intelligence or genetic engineering or new energy technology, nuclear fusion, these types of things. And you could put a term on that of exponential technologies, technologies that can have an impact that you could measure exponentially as opposed to um, linear. The second I would call social technologies. Social technologies I would define as how uh, society works together to interact. So things like governance, um, things like uh, policy and legislation, but also um, uh, norms, societal norms, how people work together, um, uh, all of those things. I think one of the core, if not the core problems of the 21st century is that the rate and the pace of how exponential technologies are moving is deeply outpacing the rate at which social technologies are moving. When we think about social media, for example, hmm. we, have a, we have an incredibly potent tool and set of algorithms now to know exactly what, who, what and who somebody is, uh, what your preferences are, how long you're going to stay on a web page before you click on ads who your friends are, all of that stuff. And uh, I would classify that as an exponential technology. We, we saw it grow exponentially with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these things. The social technology of how to interact with that, how to understand that, techno- that, 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 that movement has comparatively slowed. Um, you see Congress people and senators who really don't know, or at the time don't know, there's this great Orrin Hatch uh, kind of uh, quote where he, he's asked Mark Zuckerberg, you know, how do you make money? And, and you, you, you see this drop off between, between that. Now think about other technologies beyond even social media, and you see the same thing. And I think if exponential technologies continue to outpace social technologies, you start to open up far more than before existential risk, but also risk that I wouldn't classify as existential, but I would classify as quite severe for civilization. Um, Another one you could talk about is just energy and climate change. Um, the technologies of exploiting uh, Earth's natural resources and also fossil fuels uh, to engender energy outcomes um, were not uh, initiated with the foresight of what if this puts too much carbon and nitrogen, uh, sorry, uh, carbon and methane rather into the atmosphere and too quickly. Um, the social technologies of governance of limiting that were not thought of uh, in time. I think that that discrepancy and the delta, if you will, between exponential and social technologies to me is the meta problem of the 21st century. And addressing that actually sets us up for a 22nd to 23rd century in which we can continue to develop technology, but we can actually keep up with it. And unfortunately, what I'm talking about is a problem that uh, cannot be addressed in one presidential administration, one congressional administration of two, three years or term. Um, This is a long-term problem that needs sustained effort. Again, when you think about what falls under social technology, think about governance. I think the actual structures of governance may be inadequate to address these issues. 
So this is a whole rabbit hole, but I, I would, this is, I think the topic that most fascinates me and is the topic mm. that I, I want to utilize Helena to address, but it's, it, it, it goes between for-profit and non-profit and legislative. It goes between uh, technological development and social development. And that's why we do projects, for example, like American One Room, where we brought together a representative sample of the entire United States. Um, no technology, no phones, no computers. It was just having people talk to each other in a representative fashion about the most important issues they would actually support. And that supports, I think, an element of the social, the social side. Doing that in parallel with things like carbon capture, things like grid-scale energy storage, things like replacements for plastic, I think that having that bimodal approach is important. Mm. I think it's such funny, like, that you mentioned that. I absolutely love it because it's something that I, exactly what you talk about, the, the discrepancy between the social technology and what we can be like, the technical technology. Um, it's exactly what I've been, <laughs> been studying the past three years in, in college as well. So that was, yeah. like, really interesting to me because that topic is something that is really sort of bridged into what we could in, in also the world that I come from, from neuroscience perspective is, is about like information about raising our awareness. So essentially about like having the, the social technologies, um, become more spread, become like growing and, and, and being in our awareness, essentially a question of raising our awareness, right. Mm -hmm. Um, about having the ability to, to comprehend these new technologies in, in a different way. And I think it has a lot to do with, with the question of how much information that we're receiving every single day. Um, the amount that's just ex exponentially grown, both from technology, from, from the, like the masses of things that goes on, goes on in the world. And, and I would like to think about, because I think it's something that you think about as well, like knowing how do we, in, in spite of all this huge amount of information that is coming at us, how do we make like quote unquote the right decision for the future? How do we navigate this decision-making process? So I have to answer that, I think, or at least think about answering it across two different topics. Mm -hmm. The first is how does society as a whole, how, do we, how does earth as a whole answer this question from the top down? And then the second is yes. if you are an individual, how do you answer this for yourself? Let me start with the first. I think that this is one of those solutions, and this goes back to our prior discussion, that if you do not address this through top-down governance before technology outpaces mm -hmm. governance in this, in this regard, um, it's hard for me to think about a technological solution to the technological problem of information overload. Like, it's hard for me to think about a version of major social media platforms that is more attractive to users, but better for them, that will make people switch. Because there's this race to the bottom of hijacking your limbic system and reducing your uh, attention span and focusing you on uh, addictive types of information, um, focusing you on controversial information that I think is allowing the adoption of, of social media at the highest level, but also I think the underlying algorithms that support social media and the philosophies behind those algorithms. So... I don't pretend to have a solution to this, but I, I do have one conversation I'll share with you that spirit of a solution. There are industries that exist, and they've actually existed for thousands of years, that um, uh, have something that we know called the Hippocratic Oath. If you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, um, for thousands of years, you have not been able to harm the interests of your clients. You can't hurt you're not supposed to. When it happens, you should be prosecuted. Um, you can't hurt the har you can't help, uh, harm the health of your your patients if you're a doctor. Um, you can't harm the inter uh, 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 kind of exceptions of 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 your clients if you're a lawyer. But these are very profitable industries to be in. 
I think that thinking about whether there is a version of a Hippocratic oath that needs to be imposed via regulation on social media companies, but also companies in the media sphere. Um, and doing this will be very challenging. I, I don't pretend to know how to define such a Hippocratic oath, but that is the type of top-down or in the family of the type of top-down solutions that if you're a global society and you're thinking about this problem, I wish that there was more discussion of, um, and perhaps there will be more discussion of. And this is not to say that I hate uh, these industries or that these industries are bad. Um, it's that the, um, the incentives that are given to these types of companies are such that they can actually do the right thing for their shareholders. And they have a fiduciary interest to their shareholders to do this. Um, but that right thing for their shareholders actually is uh, harmful in some ways, unless it's yes. regulated against uh, for their users. So that's, that's, I think, a societal answer. On an individual answer, let's just say you're, you're, you know, you're not going to be involved. You're not the president of the United States. So you can't <laughs> help make these decisions. Um, I think the very simple thing is uh, books. Um, I think that when you think about what a book represents, it represents the sustained work of a human being or multiple human beings over many months, if not many years on a single topic. And it's fact-checked. There's an entire set of industries of publishing. They're not perfect. There's peer review. That's not perfect. But there's a good faith attempt to put down information that is correct. And there's a system of ranking that information that um, is net good. I think reading is the, the, the simplest, the most kind of dumbfoundingly simple uh, solution to filtering information is to try to get it from books and try to get it from top books. And we, we have, you know, millennia of history of this as well. Um, and I think that, that that immersing yourself in reading as a kind of a, as kind of a, a lifestyle, as opposed to getting your sources of information of the world around you from social media and even from news, um, even the best news no matter how good the reporter is, no matter how researched they are, has an incentive structure that does not help give you, it does not help you get signal as opposed to noise. One of them that's very simple is just uh, the, uh, you know, used to be a week, but now it's a single day of what a news cycle is, that an event happens and there's such an incentive to get information about it immediately to the consumer that oftentimes uh, uh, folks, you know, in, 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 I think in the media sphere, um, whether or not they're, they're trying to do this, I think give uh, biased or, or, or information that's incomplete and, and, and can be taken out of context. And again, um, I, I think that the model of enclosing hundreds of pages into a book, binding that and then distributing it to thousands of people after fact-checking is just so much better. So this is not some sort of revolutionary answer, but people who read as their primary motive in taking information, I think have a better idea of what's going on around them. It's also just a more patient way to, to exist. And when you're staring at paper instead of <laughs> screens, that's, that's not a bad thing either. No. Um, when you're interacting with a book in the world, I think that's not a bad thing. So I, I would, th that's something that has changed my life as an individual uh, to answer this question. But I also think that more people should be reading. I think that's a very basic solution. Great. Um, as someone that, that reads a lot myself, I wanted to know, and I think a lot of our listeners want to know as well, if you could just mention like three books at the top of your head that, that inspire you or that you would, would recommend reading. I think that could be great. Sure. Um, wow. I think that one book that really changed my life is by Douglas Hofstetter. A lot of people know about this book. It's called uh, uh, Girdle Escher Bach. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very hard to describe it. Um, it's, uh, there's kind of a lot of controversy about how to describe it. I think that it's a book about uh, human consciousness and how consciousness arises 
um, and how you can look at kind of the underpinnings of this across different modalities of Gödel's mathematics um, and 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 sort of the Gödel's mathematical theorem and kind of the pro the human project of mathematics, um, uh, music, looking at uh, J.S. Bach and others. Um, and so I, I just, I think that that approach was fascinating and really changed my life. That's one. I think another one um, is what I consider the best series of biographies ever, which is the Lyndon B. Johnson series by Robert Caro. Um, he is, I, I believe he's in Vietnam right now, finalizing the final book. And I hope he finishes it before he passes because he's getting oh, old. Wow. Um, but it is the greatest study of a human being I've ever read a book about. And LBJ was not the most moral human being on the planet but is one of the most fascinating humans that has ever existed. And you have a biographer in Lyndon, in, in Robert Caro, who put in, I, I believe, 40 to 50 years of his life just to profile this president, who, if it weren't for uh, Caro, I, I don't think people would know the truth about LBJ, but they would also just not understand the individual decisions that LBJ made to run Congress in the way that he did and to facilitate change in Washington the way that he did, both good and bad. Reading that series of biographies changed the way in which I understand the world. It is kind of the uh, antidote to academic thinking. If you are stuck in a, in a frame of academia, you just assume that markets are efficient, but they're not. You assume that a peer-reviewed study is correct, but that could be off. You assume that if a company tells you uh, things that look good um, in a physics textbook or, or, or their projections are going to happen these, these, and these ways, that it's going to work. But that isn't true. There's this cytoplasm inside of the world that changes uh, things that actually happen. And that is politics, that's sociality, that's human nature. And LBJ, I think, represented somebody who was the master of that. Also understood the rules, but he understood how to break them. Mm. Caro, I think, profiled in him at such a level of depth that whoever reads those books in full, I think, just gains a better understanding, good and bad how things actually operate. And if you're somebody who wants to change things in the world, knowing how that was done through some of the core human beings that have done it again, moral and immoral um, is helpful. So I, I would say, I know that's not three books, but it's actually one and then an eight, eight yeah, book or nine book series. Um, but I always tell people if, if there's one book series that you can read that would have the highest impact on you as an individual, it would be that not enough people read, read Caro. Mm, absolutely love it. That's so great. Uh, I think I have to go get those as well. Uh, I haven't read any of them, but uh, it seems really exciting. Um, so I wanted to jump to, in this line as well, um, the work that you do and, and the sort of the path that you follow. So for, for anyone being out there thinking they want to, to do some of the same type of work or in the same space that you do, what would your best advice be? I think my, my best advice would be, especially if you're young, to think about uh, time as your core advantage and your core asset. And let me try to explain that as best as I can. When we talked back about what is the biggest problem in the 21st century, I think I was, I was making it way too complicated <laughs> about the, di the difference between exponential technologies and social technologies. But I think one of the things that, was tr that is true about this is it just takes a long time to fix this. The most important projects you can come up with are usually the projects that will uh, exist after you're dead. It'll take too long to even address it, and you won't even know whether the problem is solved until you're dead. And I think there's some exceptions to that. But when you think about timescales of thousands and thousands of years, and if you think about a historian a million years from now looking back at our generation and what does that page on that chapter look like, what actually mattered, those are going to be projects that take 50 to 60 broad sweeping 
technological changes or political changes. If you're a young person and you have the next 50 years to dedicate to something, you have an enormous advantage, which is you can do that and you can actually apply patience to that type of endeavor, which other folks can't do just by nature of their age. Mm. Um, and this is something that isn't really talked a lot about. And I think there's a bit of a bit of an intellectual epidemic of our, of our generation, which is we just switch from stuff. We do something for two years and we get bored or we do 30 things at once. And we don't understand the power of actually focusing on one big thing and seeing it through. And that is what hopefully I'm trying to do is to focus on just one thing, which is Helena, which yes. I think can have multi multiple facets within it. Um, but I think that uh, th that is, I think, such an elegant and simple key is to find something that is worthwhile and doing, come to confidence that it's the right thing to do and that you're willing to dedicate decades of your life to it, but then actually do it and, and don't get, don't check it out after a year if it doesn't start working. Um, I think that that is something that people aren't really thinking about at this level of depth. They're actually thinking about the reverse, which is how can I make as much money as I can for two years and then go start a, a foundation? Hmm. Fine. But um, what are you doing in those two years and how is that changing you as a person? And also, is that really going to work or are you going to take shortcuts? Yes. I think we have something that is what I like to call sort of a pathological sense of, of impatience. I think that's something that is both our biggest advantage in our generation as well, but also definitely our biggest Achilles heel, right? Because it's it's something that we want to do, a lot of things that we want to do at the same time, and we want to have things happen in a really quick result-oriented way. Well, we can't really do a quick fix with anything of, with anything talking about making an actual difference in the world, and, and that's yeah. something that, that is a process, right? So going into to the work that you guys have been doing, like specifically in Helena. So what are some of the recent projects that you've been working on? Sure. So uh, one of the projects that um, just yesterday, there was a great update on. Um, they raised a hundred million dollars as their newest uh, round of fundraising um, is a company called Energy Vault. And we're a strategic partner of theirs. We invested 20 million in the company. We've been focused very deeply on it. I sit on the board. What they're doing is amazing, and it's, I think, one of the core needs for solving climate change. They do grid-scale energy storage. And the short answer on why this is important is if we're actually going to, as a global society, switch away from fossil fuels to clean energy, um, as part of clean energy, you have things like wind and solar. And the issue is the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't mm -hmm. always blow. And during those periods of intermittency, you need to store the energy you wish to utilize and then put it back into the grid. The industries that currently do this, lithium ion and others, are, are great, but they also have problems. Um, you have to use rare earth minerals. You have to uh, um, weather chemical degradation and all these crazy things. And what Energy Vault's figured out how to do is very simple, actually, gravity energy storage, taking a 20-ton type brick, lifting, and then releasing it to have kinetic and is there a potential in kinetic energy uh, to, to store and release energy. So that project is something that we're very excited about. And we're, they're now seeing global deployment um, across many different continents. Another one that we're really excited about that hasn't been announced yet, but I'll tell you a little bit about it now is um, a replacement for plastic. Um, we think that we found a very interesting technology that we feel is cost competitive. We feel is actually biodegradable and we feel can be used across many different um, elements of replacing plastic. And I think this is one of the core problems is single use plastic, single use paper and other materials. Um, uh, the world is being eaten by them. Um, we are seeing what's happening in our oceans with the great Pacific garbage patch. And there's amazing Helena members like Boyan Slat that are working on this, this, uh, this problem, not just from cleaning up ocean, the trash, but preventing it from getting in there in the first place or cleaning up trash in the ocean there in the first place. Um, I think this particular project 
you know, a, a note on when it launches, tries to address that just at the source, which is to replace plastic itself and do so in a cost competitive way. So that's another one. And then another one that we're really excited about is that we are uh, doing another American One Room. Uh, we did this All amazing right. project in 2019 um, where we got a, the most representative sample of the United States ever in one place. And we polled them for three straight days about the most important issues facing the country. And we got unprecedented data about what Americans actually believe across all of these core issues during the 2020 election. And we're now uh, doing another American One Room, but just on climate. So we're getting another representative sample of the entire U.S., and we're going to try to figure out what do Americans actually believe when it comes to the core implementations to address climate change and also about the future of energy from across political spectrums. Um, we have this amazing advisory council that represents so many different parts of the political spectrum. And it's the same team that we've brought back again to do this. And my hope is just uh, when you think about countries like the U.S. and China that are the biggest contributors to, to carbon in the atmosphere, and you think about, uh, you know, the United States, uh, what bills can actually be passed with popular support? To me, that is the question when you think about things like carbon taxes, carbon dividend mm -hmm. proposals, and all of these things that are on the table uh, during the next 10 years for, for Congress to pass or not pass and for the president to sign or not sign. I think that in some ways comes down to what will actual everyday Americans support. And we want to find the answer to that question. Mm, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I'm so excited for it and for you guys as well um, to follow and, and see what happens, um, especially with sorts of it. I wanted to know about your the past project that you've been doing because a lot of them, as you said, has been with your members and coming together, working with different people. So what has these past projects taught you about working with the community and the power of community? So I think that um, it's taught me a lot. I'm trying to locate just one or two things to say. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is, again, when you go back to the way that the world is organized, especially it has been organized over the last couple hundred years, it's been very much organized in silos in which even at um, a university, and it's so yes, funny because even the, even, the even the name university is uh, uh, yes. supposed to be universal. It's supposed to be bringing together knowledge across domains. When you have you know, one department of a university not really talking to another about interdisciplinary projects, you get a lot of inefficiencies. I think that when I, when, when I think about our past projects, so everything from, you know, okay, we've identified a problem with the electrical grid, it's vulnerable from cyber attack and coronal mass ejections from the sun and extreme weather and all of this stuff. And we helped write and pass legislation. This is our second project we ever did called shield. Hmm. The people that we worked with were so diverse in what they do. These are people from like FERC and NERC regulators to um, sitting Congress folks and elected officials, but also folks in the academic community that never actually talked to the people that would make the decisions on passing these bills. So the community that we built for each project is a group of people that in some cases would have never otherwise talked to each other, but are actually working on the same thing. And that to me was just dumbfounding that, mm. um, on these critical issues, you have people again, that have been working for decades, um, sometimes even longer on, on on, a, on the same thing and they're not actually able to find and contact the folks that can right. actually address it for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it's about, and sometimes they know each other and it's about mm -hmm. trust. And sometimes there's incentive issues and political issues, but I think those are bridgeable. Um, they're just very hard to bridge. So I, I would say that that's, that's what most strikes out to me. I think the only other thing, and I'll use American one room as another example of this is that this is not just true from the privileged elite of society of the fortune 500 CEOs and the academicians not communicating to another. It's also the same thing about Americans and everyday Americans. And when we looked at American one room, um, I was in these amazing 
conversations. I wasn't speaking. I was just observing, but watching, you know, a group of 10 or 12 Americans from across the political spectrum, from people would have never otherwise met who came into this three-day process of American one room, completely vehemently disagreeing with one another, using very colorful language about it. And then actually meeting each other and then realizing that they had overlap and actually agreed, um, or they relatively agreed the respect that they had for one another when they were sitting face to face in the same physical room, um, showed me that there's a power of community that does not require wealth or privilege or, or institutional credibility or any of these things on just getting things done at a local level. And that both of these things are true and that we can actually learn a lot from, uh, things on the street corner, things on the ground, as opposed to just looking at the G7 community. And that maybe if heads of state actually spent a little bit of more time, I think, communicating at that level, they would actually understand how things actually get done um, and, 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 and the human nature component of it. Mm, that sounds great. Yeah, I think it's such an important point about the the power actually also of conversation, right? Of being able to talk to each other because I think a lot of the issues, both as you said about actually there is there is unilateral uh, departments or or people just not coming together. It's a lot of of actually not having people in the same room or not having people talk to each yeah. other because because we become so polarized um and it becomes easier especially with technology as well to to categorize ourselves into different groups without actually talking to each other and not knowing that we actually do are able to have empathy for someone else um and i think that is really an important topic that a lot of i think we've been talking a lot about as well having that going back to conversation as as a tool as well and not just something that that we've been doing just casually but actually as a powerful tool to making change and and helping people people move forward so i wanted to as before we round this conversation up which has been absolutely amazing uh i wanted to ask you the same questions that you ask your leaders and and that someone else reminded me um a couple of years ago uh which is such a powerful questions but how can our community and how can we support you and helena well how can you support us yes. I, i think um well i'm honored by that question i think at helena we have a, you know we have a very privileged position of wanting to do the reverse. I think that we exist, uh, not to ask anybody for anything, but, you know, humbly to work, to solve problems. Um, and, uh, I'm not really prepared to answer that question. I think that, uh, there are, uh, I think the main thing is when we, uh, are doing projects like American one room that, it, that I think bring together representative samples of communities. I think the biggest thing is to actually replicate that work. The, nothing that we do in American One Room is uh, proprietary technology or something that is patented. It's just finding a representative group from your local community that represents the interests of your local community and actually just doing the organization to bring them together and actually to facilitate those conversations. It's really that simple. And if you think about the the, the problems of coordination at a global society, um, it's because we have so many damn people that live on earth that live in so many different areas that come from so many different groups of interest. Um, but if you remember, we, we started out as a, as a species mm. in, I would call them sub Dun Dunbar groups of people, <laughs> yeah. meaning like, you know, 30 person sub 30 person groups um, to actually revisit that idea and actually think about community level dialogue um, that helps. Obviously it helps Helena. It helps everybody that is looking to address problems at a global scale because uh, all a global scale is, is a collective of, in, of local scale. Um, and uh, again, when we think about the problems with not technology itself, but the problems with using and relying on technology for things as basic as 
communication, who we date, all of these things that I really think should be, um, you know, person to person. Um, uh, I, I think challenging that assumption a little bit is what is, is the main thing that all of us need to work on, not just listeners of this podcast. Yeah, that's great. So, so if our listeners want to, to get to know more about Helena and the work that you do, where can they find you? Well, so, uh, I would just say two things. The first is our website. Every time we do a project, we, uh, don't just kind of post a logo of the project in a video. We actually write, you know, 10,000 word essays. Why are we doing this? What is important of it? And of course, don't worry. We start the pages with very basic information, but, um, if you go to Helena.org, uh, you can see all the work that we're doing and we update that website as much as we can with every new project. And it, I think it's really cool. It's really educational and it shows explainers and what we're doing. And then, um, to speak on social media, uh, we have an Instagram. It's just at Helena, H-E-L-E-N-A. Um, and I think we do a good job kind of using the medium of, hmm. of, of Instagram to kind of show visually what we're doing and, and to provide more day-to-day updates on, on what we're doing. So I would just look at those two things. Um, we try to not have the biggest footprint. Um, we don't do ads or, uh, uh, you know, uh, post a ton on social media either. I think it's mainly just because I want the brand of Helena to be, look, this is what we're trying to do in the world. Here's the ways that we can work together. Um, but once you're done with that, go outside and enjoy, enjoy nature. Don't (laughs) looking at what we're doing and, and, and don't spend hours on your computer. Um, I think that's part of our, our, our thinking as well. So we, we try to not keep people's attention too much, too long. No, I would also recommend people going and checking out your page about on Hill as well, about your book recommendations. I think that was such a great inspiration for me as well. Just like seeing someone else, what does other people read? What does other people are inspired by? Because there is so much information out there as we talked about before. And it's such an thinking that seeing people that that you're inspired by or that do some of the work that you aspire to do i think looking at what they read or the people that they have talked to i think that just teaches you a lot as well so i would put that out there as well so henry thank you so much for for talking with me today it was such a pleasure and uh, i had such amazing insights and and i was just like wanted to say thank you for tuning in with me um it's been a pleasure thank you for having me episode was brought to you by Humanity Up. Thank you for tuning in and for being part of this amazing community. I'll see you next time.